If you would, please, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We continue in our study, the Gospel of Mark. The book opens with the title of the work, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it tells us of the one who came before him to announce him, that is John, where he ministered, what he looked like, that is his appearance and his clothing and what he ate, his message and the response. And then Jesus appears. He is baptized and he goes into the wilderness. Then he begins to preach. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel or the good news. Then we saw last Sunday the calling of the first four apostles where he said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I call them apostles, that's what they were later on, but at this point they are followers, they are disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. And then we have demonstrations of his authority. He teaches in the synagogue, um, he casts out a demon, an evil spirit from a man there. He heals Simon's mother-in-law afterwards, right after the service, he goes to Simon's house, his mother-in-law is sick with a fever, he takes her by the hand and heals her. And this opens the door to other acts of, we might say, authority, but also of deep compassion. That evening, so Sabbath is over, that evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And then we saw that his ministry, like John's, because John going out in the wilderness and dressing like a crazy man, a wild man, you know, and eating locusts and, and honey, uh, Jesus' ministry was not going to fit the pattern of what people expected. So in verse 35 of chapter 1, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And his disciples, you know, when they found him, were like, what's up? What are you doing? Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus said, I have to go elsewhere and preach the gospel in those towns as well. Today we come to the end of chapter 1 and we'll go into chapter 2. Um, it closes, this chapter closes with another healing, the healing of the leper. Look, if you would, at verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. As many of you know, this is probably my favorite story recorded in the Gospels. There are a number of things for us to consider here. First of all, leprosy in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, was something that isolated. Someone who was a leper had to be removed from society. Um, in Leviticus, there are two chapters that deal with the problem of leprosy and what was to be done. Lepers were considered unclean. This is from chapter 13 of Leviticus. The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. Leprosy isolated and someone was cast out of the camp. 
of all the people of Israel, they were the most ostracized. They were the classic outsiders. They were not allowed to come into camp. They're excluded once Israel got into the promised land from the cities. Um, they could not enter Jerusalem or the temple area for worship. In this story, the fact that this leper even comes up to Jesus is quite remarkable. In Luke 17, we have a more appropriate approach, if you wish. Uh, as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have mercy or have pity on us. But this man has faith. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You'll notice he does not demand to be made clean. His approach is modest and respectful. Faith keeps him in his place before the one who has the power and if he wants to, can in fact cure him. He's not demanding. He doesn't say, make me clean. He says, if you want to, if you are willing, you can do it. While it's not demanding, it is also quite confident that in fact, the Lord Jesus is able to do this. That Jesus could in fact heal this man if he wanted to. And so we find a combination of modesty and confidence. And I think we tend to vacillate one or the other um, this man had both. Um, there is this quiet confidence, this knowledge that in fact Jesus could heal him. If we would be honest, faith does not know if in fact the Lord will do this. When we pray to God, we ask that he do something, that he bring healing, but faith doesn't say, oh, I know, in fact, that this is what the Lord will do. The reality is, one day, each one of us will die. Our, our time in these bodies is limited. Um, but this man has confidence. He has confidence that if the Lord wants to, he can do this. It's not, you know, the if is not, I'm not sure you can do this. If you can do this, no, he's quite confident that he can And then what to me is the most moving part of this is that Jesus reaches out and touches the man and says, I am willing, be clean. If you think about it, Jesus could have very easily have backed up a few paces, like you know, social distancing, you know, keep your distance there, and I am willing, be clean. But it would have been entirely different, wouldn't it? Yes, the man would have been healed, but there's something about Jesus reaching out and touching him. Um, at that point in human history, people believed that leprosy was contagious. That's why lepers had to be outside the community. Um, the fact that Jesus reached out and touched that man speaks volumes. One writer put it this way, the whole gospel is in that grasp. This is the easiest of all the miracles to understand. Here's a man who since becoming ill has never been touched. Few acts could affect or would affect this constantly shunned leper like this man's touching him. 
And in the touch, we have God's identifying love. Jesus touches him before he heals him. It's not like, no, 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 no. You, you need to be healed and, and then, then you know, we can touch. Um, one of the lessons from this miracle is that the kingdom of heaven has come. That which is clean is stronger than that which is unclean, which is quite contrary to what we find in the Old Testament. If you read through Leviticus, which at times can be tedious, but you find a principle that if there's something or someone who is unclean and that something or someone touches someone who is clean, the clean becomes unclean. Now that Jesus has come into the world, it's quite the reverse. And we find this uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is dealing with the whole uh, issue of marriage. And he says, And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Paul imagines that there are situations in which you have a couple and one of them becomes a Christian. And the question is, well, I'm now a child of God. Should I live with someone who is not a child of God? Well, under the Old Testament system, he's like, no, he's unclean, you're clean. And Paul says, no, actually, you sanctify him. You make him holy. That's something all these centuries later we still don't fully comprehend. But this is what we find in the kingdom of heaven. It is easy to believe that Jesus touching this man would be enough to heal him. But Jesus speaks. He says words in order to interpret his touch. See, oftentimes our actions need to be clarified by things that we say. The act without words might be somewhat unclear. And if you have words, but there's no action, then that's, what is that? That's, that's unimpressive. You may remember the story of the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, and she touches Jesus' robe, thinking, I will be healed. And she is healed, but that's not enough. Jesus says, who touched me? He wants a conversation. There have to be actions and words, not just one or the other. Put yourself in the place of this leper. No one has touched you for who knows how many years. And Jesus touches you and then he speaks. And then he says, I am willing to be clean. Emotionally, wouldn't it just go over you like a tidal wave? Just be so amazing. The result is, immediately, we read in Mark, the key word, the man was, in fact, cured of his leprosy. And then Jesus gives this man instructions. Look, if you would, at verses 43 and 44. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. See, the Mosaic law spelled out what would happen if somebody had leprosy, and then it seemed that that leprosy had been cured, had gone away. Um, this is spelled out in Leviticus 14. The 32 verses deal with this. Okay? It's quite detailed about what, in fact, should happen. It is the priest 
who is to say you are healed? See, if, if a leper says, hey, I'm cured, I don't have leprosy anymore, um, people might say, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I believe you. But a priest, in fact, was to announce that this person had been cured. Matthew doesn't tell us this, but Mark does. And I think it's why I prefer Matthew's account to Mark's. The man didn't do what Jesus told him. Look at verse 45. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people came to him from everywhere. This is, this is something I remember from when I first preached through Mark more than 40 years ago. And that is we had someone who had been visiting uh, our church. We were still meeting in a house at that point. And uh, she, in fact, became quite irate with me and argued with me um, and said that I was wrong. That because I said this man disobeyed Jesus. He was supposed to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, and do the things that are required. And he didn't do that. And he was wrong. And she said, no, no, he wasn't. Aren't we supposed to share the gospel? Aren't we, in fact, to tell people what Jesus has done for us? Yes, but in this specific instance, the man is given very specific instructions about what he is to do. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. And as I said, Leviticus 14, there are 32 verses of what the priest is supposed to do. It's something that is to take eight days, this, this rite of purification, to know, yes, in fact, this person has been healed of leprosy. Why did Jesus tell him to do this? Well, there are a number of possibilities. First of all, Jesus is acknowledging what is written in the law. That, in fact, in Leviticus, instructions are given. And Jesus came to fulfill the law. But secondly, think about this. If Jesus cured a blind person, you would know it. People would like, oh, he can see now, she can see now. If Jesus healed someone who was lame, who was a cripple, now they can walk. The evidence is right there. But if somebody who had leprosy then claims, I don't have leprosy anymore, um, I think people would be suspicious. Because maybe, it's, maybe you're hiding it under your clothing. You still have leprosy, but you're not showing it to us. And therefore, you need an external witness. You need a priest who for eight days has observed this person and at the end can say, yes, this person has been healed. People wouldn't have to take the leper's word for it because the priest, in fact, had said, yes, this man is clean. The procedure took eight days, as I said, and I think, and this is just my opinion, those eight days might have been days of meditation and of thinking of, of what has happened to him and who it was that did this to him. It would have been a great eight days of saying, look at what Jesus has done for me. But above all, it gave the man the opportunity to be obedient to Jesus. Jesus said, this is what you're supposed to do. See, I think that many people ask God for miracles. 
They ask for healing or various things. And then God, in fact, in his grace, responds and brings healing. And then we don't hear any more from these people, do we? What we find is they do not obey him. I find it intriguing that in Matthew's account, when the leper comes to Jesus, he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Look at the Mark account. He doesn't say Lord, does he? I think that's very telling because, in fact, he did not treat him as Lord. If you think Jesus is Lord and Jesus says, this is what you're supposed to do, that's what you're going to do. But, in fact, the man did not do it. The bad example of this leper should be a lesson to us all. That when we come to the Lord in prayer, we acknowledge him as Lord. And when we're finished praying, we obey him by God's grace as we live our lives. Now we come to chapter 2, and it's another healing. And this is, I think, another familiar story. Uh, Let me read the first 12 verses of chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat that the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this man talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, immediately took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The location. I don't know that I've ever noticed this before, but Jesus comes to Capernaum. He comes home. Now, he was raised in Nazareth, and at a certain point in his life, we're not told when or why, he and his family, his mother as well, moved to Capernaum, okay? Verse number one, when Jesus had again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. It appears that this miracle happened in Jesus' house, in his home. He had come home. There's so many people, though, that have come to Jesus' house that the four men who are carrying this paralyzed man, this paralytic on a mat, they can't get in. So instead, they go up to the roof and they dig a hole in the roof and lower him down. Jesus' response is not what we might expect. We might expect him to say, you are healed. I'm willing. Be clean. Now you can move. But instead, he says, your sins are forgiven. 
we would expect more of what we read in John 5, the man who is at the pool of Bethesda. The audience among them are teachers of the law. Matthew gives us a lot more detail. Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. So there's a bunch of people there who are the scholars, who are the rabbis, the teachers of the law. Um, Jesus had to know they were there. They are scandalized by what Jesus says. And indeed, let's, in, in a real sense, they are, they are exactly right. Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus is God. He has the authority to forgive. Okay. And the point he's trying to make, because if he had said to the guy, you know, take, get up, take your mat and walk, people were like, ooh, another miracle. He healed somebody. But Jesus wants people to know that he has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus ties this authority to forgive with his power to heal. He tells the man to get up, and that's what the man does. Praising God. He went home praising God. People oftentimes, as with the case with the leper, want miracles apart from the theological, the theological content. What we see in this miracle is the importance of the word. Conversation. And so Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. You may remember the story when Jesus went home to Nazareth, where he had been raised, and he, uh, in the synagogue, they're waiting for him to speak. Actually, they don't want him to speak. <laughs> they want him to do the miracles there that he had done elsewhere. And when he speaks, they are unhappy with what he has to say. They want the miracles. They don't want the Jesus. They don't want the Lord. They want him to do the miracles but Jesus speaks and he accomplishes miracles. He heals this man. There's no magic wand. There is a conversation, however. Some have suggested that, in fact, there's a connection between this man's condition and some sin or sinful behavior in his life. We're not told this, and I... I would not want to go beyond what we find in Scripture. Okay. If, in fact, it is the result of sin, and I say if, it is really striking that Jesus calls him son. Son, your sins are forgiven. The authority of Jesus is removed by the fact that this man, in fact, can get up and walk, and he does. So now people know something they didn't know before, and that is Jesus can forgive sins. And how do we know that? Because Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. And the man does. In Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. When we went through a series on miracles, we looked at this particular miracle. And one of the things I mentioned is that as far as we know, we're not told, it wasn't the paralyzed man, the paralytic, who had faith. He wasn't like the leper who said, if you're willing, 
you can get rid of this paralysis. It is his four friends who have faith. If you look at it, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Faith is trusting God, believing. It is to be the mark of a Christian, one who is a child of God. And as one writer put it, faith is not simply the means through which a person becomes a Christian, but also the essential manner of the Christian life. We are Protestants. We are children of the Reformation. We believe sola fide, that is only by faith. Yeah, but we're also children of this age. And so we tend to think of faith as something very, very individual, that I must have faith for me and me alone. It's become very private and very individualistic. On top of that, we live in an age, certainly with this pandemic, in which we are isolated. We're isolated from one another. Suffering and pain, sickness has isolated us from one another. Think of the thousands who have died alone as a result of COVID-19. And so we might think faith is something I must do for me and for me alone. I would say this is not a biblical view of faith. These men have faith for their friend. And they don't say anything. They trash the roof, you know, they open it up, and they lower the guy down. And nobody says, could you fix this guy? They believe that Jesus can. It is a silent faith. And Jesus, in fact, heals the man. It is a remarkable story. And yet, by God's grace, it is a story that we live out every day, Certainly on Sundays when we gather and we speak of needs in our lives and the lives of others, and we believe for others as we pray. Third story, and then we will be finished, and that is the calling of Levi. This is in verses 13 through 17. Jesus has already called four disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. These are fishermen. They are unschooled, ordinary men, as the Sanhedrin observed. Jesus calls them to be fishers of men, and they follow him. He called them in the midst of their work, manual labor. But now this calling of Levi also takes place in the, in the midst of his work, but he's not a fisherman. His work is quite different. Look, if you would, at verses 13 through 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. A bit of background about tax collectors. Okay? The way that the Romans set up the system is, I mean, they're the occupying force. Okay? The people already hate them. So they sort of have a buffer between them and the local population. They hire people or they get people from the local population to collect the taxes. So the Romans don't do it directly. They're hated already. 
So let somebody else do it. And what they would do is they would have an auction. And they would bid out and say, okay, who wants to collect taxes for Capernaum? And whoever had the highest bid, he would get the job. And he would have X amount of money he was to collect in taxes. That's not to say he couldn't collect a lot more. Just so he got what the Romans wanted. And so the tax collectors were hated by the local people. Not only because they worked for the enemy, the occupying force. But because they were dishonest. They took more than they needed to. By the way, there were, there were taxes. Well, we live in a tax driven society as well. There was a poll tax, land tax, toll tax if you traveled, uh, inheritance tax, all these taxes. And Levi is one of these tax collectors. Okay. By the way, Levi has another name. His name is Matthew, as in the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. These men were seen as traitors. They worked for the enemy. At a later time, we're not exactly sure about this, but in the Mishnah, that is a record of the traditions of the Jews, it was said that they could not be witnesses in legal trials. Okay? They were put in the category of murderers and robbers, and you can't trust them, so they cannot be witnesses. As a result, these people were outside normal society. Uh, The law spoke of clean and unclean. Lepers are unclean. Guess what? Tax collectors, unclean as well. They're outsiders. In today's language, we would say they're the other. Those guys over there. Okay. And so it was easy to distinguish between them and the local population. Yes, they were Jews. It might have been Levi's hometown, Capernaum. Yeah, but everyone knew he's not like us. He's one of those guys. So how are you supposed to treat such people? How are you supposed to treat such people? If you see them as outsiders, if you see them as unclean, what is, what is to be your position? How are you going to treat them? Well, according to the Pharisees and the others, they are sinners, these tax collectors, and you're not to have anything to do with them. I've mentioned this before, but at least one scholar has argued that the reason Jesus was crucified was because he ate with these people. He broke social convention. You're not supposed to eat with these people. They are unclean. But Jesus is quite different from the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He, in fact, did eat with them. In Luke 7, we have the story of uh, Simeon, uh, the Pharisee who invites Jesus over for dinner. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. By the way, Jesus would eat with tax collectors. He'll also eat with Pharisees. Okay. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, 
he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Did Jesus know she was a sinner? Of course he did. Of course he did. Did he know that Simeon the Pharisee was a sinner? Yes, he did. Unfortunately, the woman knew she was a sinner and Simeon didn't know that he was. See, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he let this woman wash his feet? They need help. They need grace. All human beings do, but these people recognize. See, they've been isolated. They've been ostracized. They're outside. They are other. And they know, in fact, that, yeah, they're not good people. And they see their need of the Lord Jesus. Not everyone recognizes their need of help. Certainly the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did not. But Levi and his tax collector friends do. Did you catch the last part of verse number 15? I don't know if you caught that last bit. For there were many who followed him. Many tax collectors, in fact, who put their faith in the Lord Jesus. Did they leave their profession of collecting taxes, like Levi? Not necessarily. In Luke chapter 3, in dealing with John's ministry, preparing for the coming of Messiah, Luke records, tax collectors also came to be baptized. Remember, baptism to show repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Teacher, they ask, what should we do? Okay, we're tax collectors. We work for the Romans, the hated Romans. We're seen as traitors. We're outsiders. What should we do? And what does John tell them? Got to quit your job. Can't do that job? No, that's not what he says. Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Stay in your profession. Just do it honestly. I believe it is possible that Levi was one of those tax collectors. He was one of those who had been baptized by John. After all, it is one of the marks of discipleship. To be a disciple, one of the twelve in Acts chapter 1, is that they had been baptized by John. So he had, in fact, not given up his job. He was simply doing it honestly. And when Jesus comes and says, follow me, Levi's there. I think oftentimes we have the wrong picture that here's a guy who's doing horrible, horrible things and Jesus says, follow me. And he's like, okay. But I think this is a man who was living, doing his vocation in a correct way. Okay. What can we take home with us today from this, these, these passages that we've looked at? First of all, there may come a time or times in our lives when we want or when we've wanted God to intervene. And in fact, he may do so in grace and compassion. Just as Jesus touched the leper and said, I am willing, be clean. Or God has said in our lives, by his grace, he has touched us and said, I am willing to do what you ask. And our prayers are answered or they were answered. Yet we may, in fact, find ourselves being less than enthusiastic, might even be reluctant to obey him. We like the miracle part. We like his power in our lives. Yeah, we're not so keen on obeying him. That is, we don't acknowledge him as Lord. 
we may rejoice at what he has done in our lives or in the lives of others. But we're a little slow on the obedience. And this, this is not right. We should not be like this leper. We should take to heart what we are told. The example for us in Mark chapter 1 is not the leper. It's Simon's mother-in-law. Jesus heals her and she gets up and serves them. The second thing is on forgiveness. In various cultures, I would say including the one in which we live, forgiveness is seen as a sign of weakness. Instead, revenge is what is seen as right, a moral duty. And so we have stories of whole families or communities or nations carrying on vendettas from generation to generation. This is what you must do. We find it in tit-for-tat retaliations. And people who live that way oftentimes make the mistake of thinking that's how God does things. That's how God works. When Jesus says to this paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, it sent shockwaves through the crowd. I think it should send shockwaves through our society today. The reality is forgiveness is in fact very powerful. And it is to be the mark of God's people. In the model prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And after giving this prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his listeners, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do but it is the right thing to do. And then uh, thirdly, believing for others. As we pray for one another and for others, we should recognize that we are in fact believing for them. We are trusting God for them, for the requests that have been made today, those who are sick, those who are in need. We are believing for them. For our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine and in Russia, we are believing for them, like these four men did for their paralytic friend. We are a people. We are the people here at Melrose, a congregation, not simply a collection of individuals. We are brothers and sisters, and we are to believe for one another. This may almost sound heretical, in our age, which is so individualistic, I must believe, if you have enough faith, God will do this for you. Well, if that's the case, I'm in trouble. Okay, because I, I don't think I can ever have enough faith. It's not the amount of faith. Okay, What I do have are brothers and sisters who will believe for me and pray for me and trust that God will do what is best in my life. We are to stand together and believe, and believe for one another, particularly when circumstances make it really hard to believe. We are to do this for one another. And then lastly, sinners. How are we supposed to treat our fellow human beings, those who, like us, bear the image of the Creator? Jesus came for those who are sick. And who is sick? 
All of us. We're all sick. We're all sinners. And as Christians, we should understand this better than anybody else. If I were to ask you, is there someone you know or someones you know who's really just obnoxious? Just really not a nice person. Just nice to be around. I think we all do. And are we to treat them any differently than we treat the people who are really nice to be around? Jesus will eat with the Pharisee. He'll eat with tax collectors and sinners. He'll touch a leper. He'll tell a paralytic, take up your bed and walk. He'll say to a tax collector, another outsider like the leper, come on, follow me, be my disciple. This is how we should live our lives. The fact is, everyone is in need of grace. Everyone. And we should recognize that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word and how by your spirit it speaks powerfully to us. It convicts us of our sins and our wrongdoing. How like the leper we want you, we believe that you can in fact do for us what we want. And you do, and then we're not inclined to believe. We're not inclined to obey. We may believe, but not obey. We are to believe for one another. It's not hard to imagine that someone who is in pain, someone who is deathly ill, someone who is paralyzed, perhaps is not able to pray even, to believe because of the pain in their lives. But we can believe for them. We are your people. We are to be, in the words of the Ukrainian pastor, united in Christ. This is our calling as your people. May we forgive as we have been forgiven. May we see others as ourselves, as those in need of your grace. Thank you for bringing us together today. And again, we, uh, we hold up our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine and Russia. We pray for the Suarez family during this time of grieving. And for little Jose Jr., that you would continue to cause him to grow, to get stronger. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place and keep us in the coming days. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.